Welcome to the Future Belongs to Creators. I'm your host, Nathan Berry. I'm the CEO at ConvertKit, and I'm joined by my co-host, Barrett Brooks. He's the COO here at ConvertKit, and we're on a mission to help creators earn a living. This show is about turning anxious energy into creative output during times of uncertainty. Welcome to episode 94 of the Future Belongs to Creators. Today, we have a very special dance episode brought to you by the one and only Barrett Brooks. If you're tuning in only with audio, boy, are you missing out. All right, today we are going to talk about skills versus talents and answering this question of how skills are the foundation for any successful creative endeavor. But what are you born with versus what can you develop over time? How do you think about that and how the mindsets play into it? Barrett was obviously born with those dance moves that falls completely into the innate talent bucket. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we get into the extreme superior genetics of Barrett Brooks, how are you? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, I'm good. It was a good weekend. Um, I did find that having taken a week off for Thanksgiving, it made this weekend feel very short, um, which was mm-hmm. interesting. However, it was a cozy one, Uh, had some cool weather here and just kind of hung out by the fire. I finished a book that I've been reading for eight months, eight months. It's a long time. It's called Figuring by Maria Popova. That was very rewarding. I feel like I'm going to really have like a spurt of finished books here at the end of the year. I'm in the middle of 10, according to Goodreads. (laughs) Uh, And that is what happens when I get bogged down in one really long one. So anyways, I'm excited about that. And just a good week ahead. We finished up annual planning for the company and we're going to move into sharing a lot of that strategy with the team this week. So a lot of good momentum around here. How are you doing, Nathan Barry? I'm doing well. I'm green. My my schedule is getting to a place that I really like it. I feel like I've been fine tuning it for a while and it's, it's getting good. So like, like you mentioned, we did annual planning last week that took a lot of time and attention, but I just feel like I just learned and grew as a leader. Uh, and that was really helpful. We hired, or we had both of our coaches, uh, Dan and Andy come on and help facilitate the planning. It's something you've been pushing for, for a year and a half now, something like that. And that was really, really good. I feel like they helped teach us a bunch of things. It was a mix of how do we do the planning itself? And then there's like, pause, let me teach you about, see this point where you guys are stuck. Here's, here's some skills and tools you can use in that. So hopefully we can pass that on to our team and to any listeners. Um, I don't, know, I don't know what else is going on. I think we're going to rent a cabin in the mountains this weekend. That, that sounds, sounds nice. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Go find some snow. Maybe I'll so, do that. What the hell? I can do that. <laughs> you can, <laughs> you can do that. Um, I don't know. I think that's all. Let's, uh, let's dive into the episode before we do that. We have announcements to make. Don't yes, we? but I think we'll ask you to stick around till the end for the announcements. Ooh, I like it. A little cliffhanger. That's good. We're, we've got an announcement about 2021 and what we're doing with the show. But first, let's do the actual content. That sounds good. All right. So today we're talking about skills versus talent. And I thought it'd be fun. I have a list here of a whole bunch of things. And I'm curious, we can kind of riff on a few of these back and forth. Which ones for you fall into this bucket of like, yeah, if I put, if I put time to that? You know, I could, through deliberate practice and effort, I could acquire that. And which ones where it's like, okay, no, that's, that's natural born talent. You're, it's a gift you're born with. And, uh, you know, what are you going to do about it? So the first one I have on the list is writing a book. So before we get into this, we will put these in the show notes. 
Yes. Um, I would recommend doing this as an exercise yourself as well. Or if you have a notebook while you're listening, like it could be fun to do as we go and answer for yourself. Do you see each one as a skill or talent? Um, because I think it will be very revealing. Okay, let's go. Yeah. Okay. Writing a book, skill or talent. Um, I think it's a skill. I think of that one as a skill very much. Yeah. Writing a book skill, hundred percent. I've done it easy. I mean, it's a lot of work, but you know, that kind of thing. Writing fiction. I, I do feel like there's more of an element of, <laughs> um, I, I have been challenging my own thinking on this as I've, I've read more biographies on fiction authors and things like that, but I think of it very much as a talent. Yeah, me too. Um, okay. Singing talent. Yeah. I, I'm a hundred percent in the, in that bucket painting. Mm, I'm, I'm like, if we're on a spectrum, I'm more to the talent side with painting. Yeah, same as well. Uh, playing an instrument. Uh, playing an instrument seems like a skill. I do feel like there are elements similar to singing where there are talent aspects, but yeah, it feels like more of a skill to me. Yeah, so this is one for me, singing and playing an instrument, where I'm not good at either one. And so from a my exposure experience level with them, we're roughly equal, but I view them as completely different. And not like intellectually, I mean like emotionally immediate response mm -hmm. where singing for me is entirely, or it's in the talent bucket. Obviously with practice, you can get better at it, but you either have it or you don't, but playing an instrument, I'm like, Oh yeah, no, just like apply yourself for like five or 10 years and you'll be good at it. Um, and so that's one that, that stands out diving into a few more of these. Let's go with business. Uh, a skill. I mean, business is a big category, but skill. it's a big, <laughs> it's a big category. Um, what else is in here? Learning a language skill. I think that appears as a talent for a lot of people. You know, when you hear people who speak like 10 languages and things like that, I think most people assume that is talent based though. Mm -hmm. I will say that. Yep. That makes sense. Uh, cooking a skill for sure. Yeah, totally. Um, okay. Charisma, now, charisma. Oh. Well, I was going to choose another one, but charisma, <laughs> I think it's talent. Um, and this one is interesting because a lot of the ones I think of, and we'll get into this, but a lot of the ones I think of as skills are ones I have personal experience with. But I think I, or I know I have been in the past described as charismatic. And I don't know that I have done anything to particularly cultivate that. But maybe we should unpack that later in the show. Right. Yeah. Um, I was going to paste all of these into the show notes or uh, into the chat so everyone could see them, but it's going to paste them in the world's worst format. So yeah, I, I'm not going to do that, but we have a whole list of a bunch of these. What was one that you're going to pick from your list? I was going to say poetry. Oh man. See poetry. Okay. Poetry is hundred percent in the talent bucket for me, along with songwriting and composing music. Yeah. Um, but if you want to get into writing nonfiction, like you want me to write a historical something or other, or you want me to write a, a training book on anything, that is entirely in the skill category. Yeah. So yeah, what it where's poetry for you? It's in the talent bucket. But I want where I want to go next in this conversation is I want to revisit some of these that we kind of both think of as talent yeah. and talk about some of our personal experiences or people we've learned from that have started to challenge some of that for us because I think that's at the heart of really what this episode is about is limiting worldview, really, or, or limiting right. beliefs, I guess, is one way that you hear that talked about. So conceptually, something that's interesting to me is, or maybe you should share some of this, like when you think back about your own life experience and how that affects which bucket you put each of these things in, what were some of the conclusions you drew? 
Yeah, well, there's things like I thought for a long time that I wasn't good at sports. No one in my family really played sports. I guess my dad did in high school and a little bit in college. He played some basketball. Um, helps being six foot five, you know, just the, the little things that little that things. help there. <laughs> yeah. Um, I can speak from experience <laughs> that five seven is not quite as useful. <laughs> at least not for being taken seriously. <laughs> yep. That makes sense. Um, so I grew up thinking I wasn't good at sports, right? If we would be out, you know, out of the park throwing a frisbee around, I was okay at it, but not not great. Whereas my wife's family they all have great hand-eye coordination, all kinds of things. It's just very naturally, I would say, gifted in that area. Now, later on in life, you know, like high school into college, when people would play Ultimate Frisbee and I'd join for a pickup game or something like that, I realized, well, wait a second. I'm not actually inherently bad at sports. I just never did it. And the reason that my wife's family is good at all of that is one, they always did it. And two, they're the sort of household where if you said, Hey, could you please pass? I don't know the muffins. They would throw them at you. And so you had to catch it, you know? And so they're constantly throwing things and testing those, those skills. And so what I viewed as innate talent of being coordinated and all of that was really just that their family did it all the time. Mine did not. Now there are plenty of things in there, you know, like we got into height being a thing. I'm six foot two. I realized when playing Ultimate Frisbee, for example, that that is a significant advantage. And so, you know, there's aspects of it, but, you know, like one of the most talented Ultimate Frisbee players that in our group um, was 5'3". And he was insanely fast. He worked really hard. And so there's all these things that you can overcome. But I basically realized that I had a whole bunch of things in my mental, like in my worldview that were in the skill bucket or the talent bucket purely because of my past experience and the environment that I was raised in rather than something that was truly outside of my control. And so that's what I wanted to dive into a lot more today. I love it. Uh, I just have to pause for a second and say hello to Dr. Dale Gotro. For those of you who have been listening to the show for a long time, you've heard me talk about the two-year leadership development program I was in in college. Dr. Gotro was the director of this program and is a PhD in things like this related to organizational development, organizational psychology, and everything like that. So anyways, it's fun to see him listening in. He asked a good question for us. So I'll be curious to get his thoughts afterwards. Yeah. Do you want to, his question is great as a, as a segue in some of this. Do you want to? Yeah. So he said, he asked us, how are you defining talent versus skill and how does passion enable or undermine either? I think that is the heart of this whole thing, right? Is how do we think of talent and skill? And I think talent in most cases is actually just a misnomer. It's an excuse that we use for why something is difficult or impossible for a given person to learn and then apply to their lives. So I think of talent as relatively uh, useless, not 100% useless, but relatively useless when it comes to acquiring useful skills um, or useful. I don't know, things that you can do in the world. But then there's attributes, physical attributes that I do think can change that in certain ways. With knowledge work though, which is what we all do every day as creators, I just think there's a lot less of that. I think it's in Jeff Colvin's book about talent, I wanna say. He talks about the exceedingly large number of professional athletes who have 20-20 vision. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons is that when you're doing something like hitting a baseball, or driving a race car, it is exceedingly useful to have very good vision. 
And some of them have even better than uh, whatever the good vision yeah. is. I don't remember what it is, like 2040 or whatever that is. Whichever way it goes. I don't know if I would even call that talent. That is an attribute, the physical attribute they have that gives them a major advantage in picking up these skills. But that would be my differentiator is like, what is a physical attribute that cannot be changed about yourself? I cannot change that I have to wear glasses for long, uh, for far away eyesight versus things that you can learn and apply in your life, which I would view as a skill. And I think most things fall in that skill bucket. When it comes to physical attributes, I think you can still pick up skills. It just might be a little bit harder for you than other people. So I'm gonna go to the music one, for example, um, and singing. Actually, I'll take singing and playing an instrument. In that leadership program that I mentioned, we did this assessment called the Highlands Ability Battery that I've talked about before. One of the things that it, ass it assesses many things, but it's things like um, your ability to brainstorm, your ability to recognize patterns, your ability to apply logic, your ability to hear and recognize tones. And so I scored very high on pretty much everything other than tone mm -hmm. uh, or tonal recognition was what it was called. And what that was, was basically just hearing a pitch in one ear and then a pitch in the other ear and saying, which one is higher? And I just couldn't do it. Like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Now my question for, so that's one of the things that shapes my perspective of singing and playing instruments as at least partially talent-based because it's tied to a physical attribute, which is highly valuable, which is being able to do things like tune an instrument, recognize uh, when you're on tone or on pitch or not. And I had this experience as a, I think I was a seventh grader where I got nominated to go try out for the state band thing or whatever. And I had to tune timbles, uh, whatever they were. They were like this type of drum that's like kind of big. I can't remember what they were called. I think it started with a T. And the way I had to do it was to play a key that was not labeled on a xylophone thing and then tune the thing. Well, I can't recognize tone. And so I just miserably failed at it. Hmm. And that one experience shaped my view that I am not capable of this. And therefore it is a talent. So my question for myself is, is it just that I have not been taught properly how to recognize tone or is it that my like eardrums are not as capable of recognizing tone? And I think that's one of those things where it's like, all right, learning the answer to that would shape my real answer to whether things like singing and playing an instrument are skills or talents. I think I could learn to a basic level, but then being very good at it, I think would be different. Right. What I, I think what's fascinating is just how different the answers are across people. And I think it's so easy to say like, well, of course you think that that is really hard because you're limited in, a, in physical abilities there. But I think what you find is that our perceived limitations or our worldviews have such an interesting, like it's not even splits of like, oh, everything in music is over here, everything, you know, or anything like that. It's like this really weird line of how you divided each thing that you have to realize, wait, this can't be my genetic makeup, who I am, like exactly how I was born. It has to be more beyond that. Like examples, I have run this exercise spontaneously with lots of friends and family members and just run through a bunch of random things. And if I run through things like playing an instrument, um, singing, you know, all of that, I'll be split on it. But if I ask my wife, she's like playing an instrument, total skill that you can learn. Singing, absolutely skill that you can learn, right? And that's her worldview. But if I'm like, okay, building custom creations with Lego. She's like, oh, 100% natural talent. Like if, you, if you're if you not born with that, you know? 
<laughs> and it's like, well, let's see. I've spent thousands and thousands of hours playing with Lego. She has not, you know? And so we have these different ways of viewing it. And what I really want to get into is this, your natural environment and how that has crafted you over time. I got this friend's in, friend in high school. Her dad was an architect. Um, she was really into drawing, sketching, painting, all of that. I remember in high school that she would do watercolor paintings, sell them on greeting cards, all of that stuff. She was doing it from an early age. She wanted to be an architect, went to school for that, ultimately decided she wanted to do interior design, Con- you know, kind of the merging of those two worlds, continued in, you know, all of her illustration and painting and everything, got an internship at Disney. Fast forward years later, let's see what we're now, 12, 13 years out of high school. She's an Imagineer for Disney. And, you know, if you look at her, you probably go, wow, you had this innate talent for as long as I've known you. But I bet that she grew up in an environment where her dad was an architect, always sketching, drawing. I bet that that was something that was always emphasized in the same way that music was emphasized in my wife's family growing up. I bet drawing and visual arts were emphasized uh, for my friend. And then so this thing that, you know, we would be like, wow, that's such an innate talent was just like, no, this is just something that we always do. And then that turned into the path for her having like one of the most sought after prestigious jobs in visual arts. So this gets into some of the passion thing, though, that I think is useful. I do believe that there is some amount of combination of nature and nurture early in life that Mm -hmm. wires our brains to be more leaning towards the like analytical or the creative work. Now I reject that premise as an adult. Like I really try and cultivate both sides of how my brain operates. And I find that to be very satisfying for me, but I think that we end up training ourselves one way or the other early in life. And that leads us towards certain kinds of pursuits. So for example, Early in life, I was very good at math. It was, it just came easy to me. Now I hit a ceiling eventually. It, I think it was calculus where it was like, okay, this no longer just makes immediate logical sense. This is like truly human created, the logic behind it. <laughs> right. And you have to really dig in to get why it matters, um, where it stopped working for me. But then on the other side, writing, I did not cultivate until I was forced to by studying abroad in Oxford, which I think I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. And that seemed like a thing that was not as accessible to me for a long time. Now, as I got older, passion became a huge piece of it because math became less and less interesting to me because I didn't find it. It was not useful for the places I was trying to go in my life, but writing, now writing was useful. Mm -hmm. And that was where I don't know that I was, I was actually scared of writing when I started having to do it at Oxford. But then when I got on the other side of that, where I had no choice, unless I wanted to drop out of my semester of studying abroad, than to write 20 pages a week for my classes. And I ended up with a stack of 200 written pages by the end. And I had gotten through the, the like dip as Seth Godin would call it, or the early hard part enough to where on the other side, I was like, oh, writing is quite enjoyable. I'm very excited about this. And that's what's led me all the way to the today of like the probably the most consistent thing I've done over the last 10 or 15 years is write now. Mm-hmm. And I, that's because I've been very passionate about it. Whereas math, I could give two, you know, what's about doing math at this point in my life. I do it when I have to, to get an answer, but I don't sit around practicing it. Cal Newport has a fantastic book on this called So Good They Can't Ignore You, essentially where he makes the argument that passion follows effort, not the other way around. 
I think interest can get us to the point where we can apply effort to things. Yes. But true passion, I think, comes from being dedicated to a thing long enough to start getting good at it. I think that's the case a lot. And I think those examples that other people set for you, like I'd be curious if there are examples that someone set for you, maybe it was other students at Oxford, maybe it was um, someone you know a little earlier in high school that gave you that little bit of an example of like, oh, writing is something that you could get good at. Mm. For me, I also... Math came relatively easy for me. Writing, I had no interest in. I remember being 11 or 12 years old and telling my mom, like, this is nonsense. I will never, like, I have learned all of the basics of writing. Like, I don't need to do anything. And she had a strong disposition towards writing and has always believed in writing and literature and everything being one of the most important things you could study. And so, you know, she forced me to stick with it. But I was always saying, like, I will never write a book. I will, like, none of that. And so I had no interest, but I had the model from her of if you want to get good at it, you can get good at it. Mm -hmm. And so then when that interest came back around, I I was pretty interested in that. Or I I had the, I should say, the mental model to realize, oh, I could get good at this. Yeah. Another example of using using sports, um, I always assumed that I was not built to run fast. Mm. And you could argue, right? A lot of people who are shorter can run really fast and that helps. And there are, there are things, right? When we're talking about the absolute fastest people, when they have the perfect ratio of upper body to lower body and, you know, all this stuff. We're not talking about that. We're not even yeah. talking about being like, uh, you know, a, a college athlete. We're talking yeah. about like- Sufficiently fast soccer. to score goals in pickup soccer. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> I do believe that, right? There is natural ability when you're like, you want to be the top 1%? in something like, yeah, you need to have Michael Phelps is uniquely built in that he, that man is all upper body, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about pickup soccer. So I always assumed I wasn't fast. I may never be fast, but the gym that I was working out in, they also trained and coached a lot of high school athletes, like the personal training side of it. And I was talking to a couple of the trainers there one day and about soccer and all that. And I was like, oh, that'd be cool. Yeah, I never really played sports, but I love soccer now. And they they like lit up and they were like, wait. They started rattling things off. Has, has anyone taught you? You know, just like some of these things. And they're like, could we watch you run for a second? And um, and so I did. And they were like, oh, man, do I have good news for you? Like your running form is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and they're like, on one hand, you know, like you might find that offensive. On the other hand... Your speed is here right now, and we see so much low-hanging fruit to teach you to, like, pick up your knees, really dry, you know, like, all of these things. That they're like, look, you're not going to be an incredible runner, but we can get you 10, 20, 30% more speed really quickly. And that was one of those things when I was able to, they helped me change my mindset of, like, oh, okay. At least to the ceiling of where I want to go, skill is what's going to take me there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no doubt. Um, I thought... So we're about 25 minutes in today. I thought maybe we could, or I could share a framework for uh, breaking down and acquiring skills that would be useful, I think, for anyone. I'm writing about this for my newsletter, actually, for this Friday called Career Capital. It's funny that we were both kind of working on different angles on the same topic that made for a perfect episode today. Um, This framework is almost entirely based on Tim Ferriss's DISS framework from the four hour chef, but it also takes into account, um, models from mastery by Robert green and the first 20 hours by Josh Kaufman. I wrote an article called expertise, why you need it and how to get it 
that we'll put, put in the show notes that kind of captures all of this that you can follow up and read. But the basic idea is that um, if you take our premise that most things are skills, very few things are limited by natural talent, uh, especially when you're not trying to be a professional athlete uh, or like professional race car driver and things like that, if you're just trying to have a very good career, most things are skill-based, then you should really focus on understanding and acquiring the skills that give you the most leverage. And we talked about leverage in a recent episode too, right? So here's the basic process. The first step is to break a topic or practice down into its component parts. Tim Ferriss calls this dissect. The second thing is to select the ones that have the most leverage. So understanding of all the things that make up a practice, which ones are most useful because you can't learn everything at once. The third thing is to put them in the right order or to sequence them so that they build on each other. You want to make progress. Number one, you want to get quick wins, but then also you want to make sure you learn the thing uh, that is most essential or like most closest to the first principle and then build on it. And then the last thing is to acquire those skills or go out and find the, the, I don't remember what the S is that he uses for that, but to basically learn them. Uh, I thought I'd use an example of marketing since that's one of the paths I've followed in my career. And if you look at marketing as a whole, you might break it down into three core buckets of brand marketing, product marketing, and demand generation. There are different frameworks for this, but just go with me for a minute. So if you've got these big buckets, then you could say, okay, well, let's look at demand generation. And within demand generation, that's really about marketing channels. And so you've got social media, email marketing, SEO, organic and word of mouth, referrals. There's all these marketing channels that can drive, drive demand generation. And then if you zoom in even more, social media, for example, is a thing that I think most people think, number one, does not require a lot of skill. And number two is somewhat based on talent, just you're good at it or you're bad at it. This is decidedly false, in my opinion, because if you dive into social media, you can come up with all kinds of skills, copywriting, comedy or wit, storytelling, research, image editing, graphic design, analytics, conflict management, de-escalation. There's like a million things that add up to what contributes to being a great social media manager. And so you can see how starting from the topic of marketing, and maybe we say startup marketing, because that's really what we're talking about here, building the buckets then taking a bucket and breaking it down to its practices and taking a practice and breaking it down to its component skills, you can now see the dissection. It's just like cutting open a frog in seventh grade biology class. You see how it all works together. Then you can dive in and say, well, which of these things really matter? So if we stay with the social media example for for a minute, you can say, which of these give me major leverage and which ones are kind of nice to have? And if I go back to that list I just shared, I would say the ones that give you the most leverage are copywriting, design, and analytics. If you know those three core practices, the other ones are really nice to have. A reminder of some of the nice to haves, research, storytelling, image editing, comedy, like these things would be good, Mm -hmm. but they're supporting of these other ones. So let's say you're taking copywriting, design, and analytics, and now you want to put them in the right order. Well, what's most essential? I would argue copywriting. Because any imagery that you're doing for social media is going to largely be based around words. There's the potential that for things like Instagram or other channels that you need imagery, but you're still going to have a written post attached to it. So I would say copywriting. You could make an argument for design first, but I'm going to say copywriting. Once you have copy down, I think design can really supplement copy to make it that much better and bring it into the world in a way that it spreads. And only once you have content do analytics matter. Because if you got no content, you can't measure it. 
So if I were going to break, as if I were serious about making a career as a social media manager uh, in marketing and startups, I would start with becoming a world-class copywriter or at least becoming very good. Yep. Uh, I think to get into the top 20% of people in the world, you can probably spend, well, Josh Kaufman would argue you could spend 20 hours on it. Then I would focus on basic design skills using something like a sketch or a Figma or, or even a Canva would be mm -hmm. sufficient probably. And then I would focus on getting really good at analytics. And so you've got this order. And if you start with just the first one, you say, I'm going to get really good on copywriting. You can probably read four or five books and be at least have the knowledge to then start applying that you can learn on the ground. And you could Google best books on copywriting for social media and get most of the way there for a list. So that's an example of how you could break down a topic. You could do the same for soccer, by the way, yep. which was all these people's point who were looking at you run, uh, ball skills, running, whatever else applies. That's how you can strategically go about acquiring skills year over year. And it's very hard to actually do. But if you do it, I think you can get the most leverage for your time and acquiring skills and applying it to whatever you're trying to achieve. Yeah, that's good. And I think just being so deliberate about it. There's one area that I want to kind of close out on because um, Barrett, you and I are both parents. I think a lot of our our listeners, you know, are as well. And we've had a lot of topics as people are balancing, you know, their creative endeavors with their, you know, responsibilities and everything mm -hmm. with their family. And I think this is a really important topic to think about as a parent, because you're currently in this environment of like, if I took the way I'm raising my child and my beliefs of the world and played it forward, what is their list going to be? If you run down this whole list, which we'll post in the show notes, what is, you know, Josiah is 11 months old right now, but 15 years from now, what would he say and why? And you don't have to go down and say like, oh man, I have to model every single one of these things for my kids. So they grew up thinking like, oh yeah, that's a skill rather than you have something you have to be born with. You can look at these major buckets because if they're looking to you to see what's possible in the world and what their worldview should be, then your limiting beliefs are going to play forward for them in a major way. Or even just your interests. You might have this mindset of like, oh, I love music. I was so good at it. And you know, I'm just the last couple of decades, I just haven't really gotten into it. And your kids would be like, music, I we've never had a passion for that, you know? And so something for me that I noticed is that my boys, so they're uh, nine, six, and then eleven months. So my two older boys are they have a tendency to copy what I do more so than they copy what my wife does. So she is a really good cook, a great musician. She's into singing, you know, all of these sorts of things. And they'll copy her in some of those things. But I realized that if I'm not interested in music, if I'm not learning instruments or those sort of things, they probably won't copy that. And so one thing that I did is just the last 10 days, I've been sitting down and been learning to play the piano. And it's just as frustrating as you might expect it would be to learn to play the piano at 30 years old. Um, but the thing is they gather around, like, what would he say? Why do you not know which note is D? And it's because I have a little iPad app that was like helping, you know, and I kept getting it wrong. And so they're seeing one, they're seeing me try something and be bad at it. Cause I think it's really rare that we model being bad at things for our kids. And then the second thing is that they're seeing, Oh, Music is something that you could learn. And we'll apply this to a whole bunch of other things. Um, 
But I would just encourage everyone to think about what they're modeling and what their mindset is and how it's playing forward in their kids. Yeah. I think about this in terms of like, if I were going to write an article about it, it would be uh, in terms of exposure Mm -hmm. and you can't teach your kids all of these things. Like the whole list that we shared would be impossible. You drive yourself nuts and your kids would be miserable in the process. (laughs) Yes. But if you pick well, you can demonstrate different buckets of learning. Mm -hmm. You know, you can do some analytical stuff. You can do some physical labor type stuff. You can do some creative work. You can do some household type things. And by exposing them to a wide enough array of types of skills and acquiring those skills, they can then go forward and figure out what are they most interested in that they want to apply that to. But like, you know, your point is well-made in that I grew up in my mom constantly. To this day, my mom says, I am not a creative person. Right. And it's like, come on, mom, you are a creative person. You just haven't had outlets for it because you've been in business your whole life and you've been in these very like sales analytics heavy type roles. Um, That doesn't mean you're not a creative person, but that message got embedded with me and that it degraded my interest in creative work or even my willingness to pursue it because I didn't see the value in it. And I think that we as parents can really model exposing ourselves and thereby our kids to these different areas that they can then pursue on their own later. And I think you can see your kids light up when you expose them to certain things, which means you can encourage it where it resonates with them. I think that's the best you can really hope to do is expose them to enough that they know that any of it's possible and then encourage their interests as they go. The other thing is, as you're thinking about learning a new skill, and I'm sharing this because this is what I've wrestled with a lot the last few months, because I have a an absurdly long list of skills that I want to learn. There is not enough time. And it made me think of a conversation that my mom had with a friend of hers when she was mid 50s. So she's, I'm trying to think how old she is now, 63 now, I think. Um, She was thinking about going back to school to become a nurse. She'd always wanted to do that. But then she had this real, like she was struggling with it. And at the age that she'd gotten to, she realized that, wait, if I do this, that's going to take four more years, you know, maybe six by the time you get all the schooling done and get to this level. Okay, I'm going to be 60 by the time. You know, I have a career on the way that I want to. That's getting close, like that's almost retirement age. And so she didn't do it for a while thinking about that. And somebody told her, whatever it was in four years, in six years, you're going to be 60 anyway. Right. Like that's happening no matter what. So do you want to jump on this thing and like actually do this thing that you've considered? Or do you want to, you know, just set it aside because it's not worth it? But like time will march on. And so I had the same conversation with Hillary because I've always, not always, say for the last three or four years, I've looked at music and something like, oh man, I should at least dabble in that, at least make some progress. But then I thought like, okay, if this is going to take years to learn, and this sounds silly since I just contrasted it with my mom's example, but I'm, I'm 30 now. If it takes 10 years to get good at music, like, you know, I'd be 40 by then. Like, so there's certainly no career in music coming from there. But I think having examples like uh, Matt Carney and his creator session, talked about learning to play play and sing in college mm. you know and now he has his whole career and he's a successful musician and so it basically just brought me to the point of like wait time will march on no matter what so you might as well learn the things that you want to do and that's where i decided like okay, okay i'm gonna sit down i'm gonna at least spend a hundred days playing the piano every single day 
and then I'll decide if I like it or, or anything mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. But I'll put that time in because the hundred days is going to pass no matter what. So yeah. you can spend it learning the new skill that you want to, or you could spend it wondering if it's too late for you to learn that skill. Mm-hmm. Love it. I'll give you a jingle. We're not doing creators of the day. We're doing an announcement of the day. Announcement of the day. <laughs> oh man, I cracked myself up. Um, Nathan, what's the deal with the podcast in 2021? Yeah, so this has been a, a really fun podcast, um, but we have also realized that there's a different type of content that you and I particularly want to be creating. So we ha- had this discussion of two things can coexist. We believe that this podcast serves a really important group of our community and we want this content to continue on. And Barrett and I might not be the best uh, people to provide that. So we're going to do a couple different things. One, uh, three people on the ConvertKit team, Charlie Prangley, Haley Janicek, and Miguel Poe are going to take over as co-hosts of this podcast and take it into everywhere that's going in 2021. Uh, they've all been guests on the show at different times. So you've uh, heard us talk about them a lot. You've heard them on the show. And then also Barrett and I are going to transition to creating a couple different kinds of content. I have a new show coming out next week called um, Art of Newsletters, and that is deep dives into the most successful newsletters, how they're run, um, everything like that. Uh, That starts next week. That will be on the Nathan Berry Show. Uh, If anyone wants to subscribe or if you're already subscribed there, the episodes will start popping up there. And then we're also going to do a show specifically on scaling a company. Um, We're playing around with ideas. It'd be something like the path to 100 million or basically talking about our journey of taking the ConvertKit from 25 million a year in revenue to 100 million. It's going to be a lot more focused on, you know, software and scaling companies and and some of those sorts of things. And of course, we'll show up on on, uh, this show plenty often as guests because you can't get rid of us. But yeah, what else did I miss, Barrett? Not a lot. I'm I'm really excited about the transition. Uh, you know, we started this show as a way to be present during a challenging time for creators, uh, just to be kind of like one of those steady voices during a really hard year. I think we will have accomplished that. Um, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure we'll get all the way to 100 episodes, uh, which I'm really proud of. And one thing I've learned throughout my career is that you don't have to keep doing something for it to have been a success. Yep. And so we can call our contributions up to this point a, a huge success of having built this community and having got, gotten to know a lot of you on the show. I love mm-hmm. seeing y'all pop up in the in the chat and everything. And also hand it off to three people who I think are better suited actually to deliver great value on this show and who are closer to that creator journey day in and day out yeah. and their side projects and in what they're working on. In some ways, we actually do a disservice because we're so far removed from those those early and, and detailed days as a creator. We're so embedded in the software community and in running companies at scale at this point. And that's where so much of our mental capacity goes. I think we'll be able to deliver a lot of value there while we continue to do our own creative projects on the side too. Um, I'm working on my own show behind the scenes too. That'll be an interview show. So I'm excited about it. We'll get to episode 100 before we sign off. And then we'll have probably a new format, um, new times and things like that for the the new team. But um, I think they're going to do a great job. And I think y'all are going to really enjoy listening to them. So I'm excited about it. Sounds good. All right. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for tuning in. Let us know in the comments what you think. And we'll catch you later. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Future Belongs to Creators. If you didn't pick it up from the show, we make a tool called ConvertKit, 
where we're on a mission to help creators earn a living by building software that helps you build an audience of loyal fans. If you want to give ConvertKit a try, you can go to landingpage.new to launch your next creative project. You'll be able to build a landing page and send emails for up to 500 subscribers totally for free. So again, that's landingpage.new. You can get started with your free ConvertKit account today. We'll be right back.